0: Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Okay, gang, you're still here. Week number two. We'll give this a shot, but first let's pray. Let's talk to God. God, we are grateful for your endowment of grace and knowledge and understanding that you've given us, the wisdom that we have in the Word of God that, as the writer of Psalm 119 says, it makes us wiser than all of our teachers. Uh, Assume they're the teachers that don't know anything about you. We have truth. We understand that. We want to be humbly deferential to you and your truth, which is a... uh, It's a challenging call as we think about the conflicting and competing worldviews that are out there. And God, we know in our day, there's so much that's pitted against us as we seek to stand up for what is right and for what is true. So I pray tonight you might help us as we try to stay very practical in this endeavor to know how to take a charge that's leveled against us and be able to remove it in a reasonable way. We can say, as Paul said to the leaders of his day, that these are These are true and rational words that we're speaking. So God, I pray that tonight might be helpful, that you would equip us, you'd prepare us. Thanks for this team, for this group, for them joining us tonight for this study. And I pray it would be uh, the kind of study that you would be honored not only by, but through, and that you would do good things in our minds even now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We have laid a foundation last week, but we need to talk about the most basic and really one of the most potentially philosophical questions that we can ask that can be taken at a million different levels. I mean we could approach it from a you know a, a dizzying climb up into an ivory tower that may not be may not be all that beneficial. You want to go a few layers deeper or in that analogy a few stories higher we've certainly covered these issues in our anthropology series on Compass night we've dealt with it in theology proper got several broadcasts out there dealing with things like the ontological argument and philosophical arguments regarding the rationality of belief in God. But I'm going to try and be very practical tonight and the issues that we face as we talk to our coworker, our neighbor, our waiter at the restaurant and try and think through how we should understand what's going on out there in the marketplace and really where I think most of us need to be in terms of the equipment to discuss this in a way that is but if something that is attainable, something that is we're able to hang on to and transfer in a conversation. So let's talk about there's so much vitriol as it relates to the conversation that sometimes we can forget that when it comes to belief in God, it is a virtually universal affirmation that it is almost universal. The stats, depending on what polls you read, which always are based on how the questions are asked, but anywhere between two percent and five percent of the world's population that's surveyable, or at least the sampling in these surveys, would say that they are atheists. Of course, theos, the Greek word for God, put a negation on the front of it. I mean, the atheists, of course, you know what that is. It's those who would affirm that there is no God. 2% to 5% worldwide in the 21st century, that is a phenomenally low statistic. The higher statistics that you'll hear about, and I think certainly when people in the press want to report on modern atheism, I mean the atheistic books sell like hotcakes today and people engage in it and there's talk shows and there's articles in the paper about it. You need to realize that a lot of those, if you read the survey questions, have to do with people that say, I'm not associated with religion. I don't want to be a part of organized religion. These are what's called today in surveys the nuns. They have no affiliation with a religious group. Uh, there's no doubt. That statistic is on the rise and it's higher than ever before in the UK, Europe in particular, Canada, in the United States, it's on the rise. But do not, as you do evangelism, and I hope you do evangelism, that's what we are trying to motivate you to do on the weekends as we study the book of Acts, you'll find... And you don't have to just be in South Orange County. You can be almost anywhere in our culture. And it's hard to find someone who really will defend the fact that they do not believe that there is a God by any definition. As we studied atheism in the bad religion series we did not long ago, which is another, by the way, reference that you can go to as we dealt with atheism as a movement in our day. And we've looked at the history of atheism and all through the Issues of philosophy and biology and all the rest. In America, it's safe to say that those who would say, I'm an atheist, which is more than just I don't go to church or I'm not involved in religion or don't want to be, we can say I think safely is around 3%. You can find stats that are higher, but I, I would refer you to the footnotes and the surveys and the questions to find out that usually that's probably the number we need to at least understand. We're not, this is not a universal belief, not even a majority belief. Modernity, I just want to make the point, does not eradicate belief in God, which of course is so much of what you're led to believe. If we just understand the universe, if we're mathematical, if we're scientific, if we're rational, if we can look and understand the rules of nature, then of course, we won't believe in God anymore because that's ancient, primitive, and superstitious. And I'm just saying it's not the case. As a matter of fact, studies will report, I just cite one study, in a 10-year span, there's a slight, it's incremental, increase in the belief of God worldwide. Now, that's not may not be the case in the United States, but including the Western and, and civilized, mechanized, technological, first world populations, you'll see even that increasing today though religious affiliation is on the decline, no doubt about that, and we hear about that and read about it all the time. The United States in particular, you will see that atheism is as a self identification on, on the rise, depending on how you look at the surveys. And I'm not trying to overqualify that, but you do see that on a slight increase in our day. You can see, though, and this is one of the clarifying features, because I'm going to throw out someone who says, I'm an atheist, and then they're in the percentage that says, "Yeah, but I believe in a God. See, I can answer, I'm an atheist, because I don't like my fundamentalist Baptist parents, perhaps, but then when you probe with follow up questions, they say, well, I believe in God. Well, if 8% of atheists believe in God, I'm going to say you don't understand the question. And, and I think we have a lot of that in statistical reporting today. Or you want to dig deeper. You may have people that say, well, I don't believe in God, but 11% of atheists and agnostics pray weekly or monthly. Now they broke that down and we could look at that. But when you think about atheists saying, well, I pray, again, I don't know that you understand. What you're citing, and I think so much of it is, of course, in a kind of iconoclastic, perhaps that's not the right word in our discussion in church, but in, in a rebellious kind of nonconformist declaration, people love to say they're atheists and yet they will, they'll pray. And I'm always wondering who exactly are you praying to? Six percent of atheists and agnostics pray every day. That first stat, 11 percent is weekly or monthly. I, again, the, the prayer list, of the agnostic and the atheist. And again, that is a broadened category. 31% will affirm, even by the answer to this question, that there is something immaterial that's real. You would be led to believe that people that would report on being atheistic and not believing in God, they don't believe in an immaterial world. They're, They're complete empiricists or naturalists, and they believe that nothing beyond the five senses exists. Well, that's not the case. Uh, 31% of atheists say that they're seeking and experience uh, spiritual peace. And even those that say they don't experience it, a lot of them want to find it. And they mean something beyond the physical. 35% of atheists think often about the meaning of life, which you may say is not all that fair because people want to talk about the meaning of life. But if you understand atheism and you really are a naturalist and believe there's nothing beyond the five senses and the patterns of the natural world, well then of course by definition there is no meaning to life. So thinking often about the meaning of life certainly shows me that it's not the kind of atheism that people would I think try to get you to believe is so common in our day. 54% 54% of the atheists feel a deep sense of wonder about the universe. Matter of fact, I'm just kind of trolling through a lot of the videos and the literature this week on atheism, modern atheism. It's amazing how many of these are trying to generate, whether it's on YouTube or their blogs, a sense of you having a transcendent experience with the universe. You think of some of the rock star particle physicists that are out there who do TED Talks or whatever talking about the fact that they want you to feel you know, this sense of wonder about the scientific uh, Genesis story. I mean, that how they put these terms and, and words. So we're looking at something, I think, that should help you understand that even if your friend or your sister or your uncle says I'm an atheist, to, to go a few layers deep, you might find out it's not what it seems to be on the surface. Atheism doesn't mean in a lot of people's minds what you may think of me. It doesn't mean they don't exist, but I'm just saying it's not as it's not as common as you think. Virtually universal belief in God. Now, there's always been denial. Uh, we can go back, and it's not there's not a correlation. As I tried to say, with modernity and technology, and then the belief in God goes away. That is not the case. There's no corollary in that. As a matter of fact, if you go back three thousand years, you would think, well, of course, everyone believed in God then. Well, these are words from three thousand years ago in Psalm chapter 14, verse one, that talks about people who affirm even in their heart, they believe it to the core of who they are, in their thinking, they think there's no God. Now of course the Bible's uh being a bit dismissive and disparaging about those folks, but there's a statement of atheism or Psalm ten four. In the pride of his face, here's a little diagnostic, the wicked does not seek him, all his thoughts are there is no God. So again, I, I'm just trying to make the point that atheism has always been and the denial of the belief in God has always been present in a minority of the population. Psalm 94, 7 through 9, they say the Lord does not see, Yahweh does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive, whatever's out there, there's not a personal sense of connection to the universe, and of course the response to that is, understand, dullest to the people, fools, again, not a kindly depiction of those who do not affirm God or theism. When will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? So again, if you get active in sharing your faith, you're going to find that most people believe in God, though you're going to run into those that say they don't. I'm trying to challenge you to dig down a little deeper and to recognize that most people have some concept of God and they seek some kind of transcendent spiritual experience. I think the reason it is so universal is because believing in God is a reasonable assumption. And I use the word assumption advisedly. It is something that people assume. It's something that people don't need proof for, though that I think there's evidence for. And it's a rational belief. I'm thinking, and matter of fact, I'm combining those concepts in this phrase. It is a reasonable assumption. And it's one that's been, I think, so universally kept and held, even though there's explanations for everything that you might want to have dismissed into the category or the bucket of, well, they must have thought God did that because they didn't have an explanation for it. So what we call the God, God of the gaps. We'll talk about that. All I'm saying is that an ultimate being explaining reality is something that has been commonly understood. And most of the people that you run into that you discuss reality with will say that now there's always again there's always folks that are trying to be non-conformist and even i would recommend rebellious against what i think is so widely accepted you're gonna find people that deny everything that is commonly affirmed and yet i'm just trying to say it's been a reasonable assumption in society and the answer to that is and i think it's rightly put in people's minds that answering the question why there is something rather than nothing is um what leads us to this reasonable assumption that there must be something out there. Something that is an ultimate sense of of cause. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 4 and you'll even see in our English Bibles it's put in parentheses because it's a parenthetical statement. But in the middle of this discussion uh, about the building of something it says parenthetically for every house is built by someone and the builder of all things is God. There's a sense, this categorical sense that there must be some as the philosophers put it some unmoved mover some uncaused cause that is behind all of this there's a million ways to explain that in people's non-christian thinking an unbiblical or extra-biblical rationality or logic but most people are are pretty comfortable with the fact there must be something i mean they can sit there in in class, they can be physicists and scientists, as I was just discussing about the university of, of, of Chicago. Uh, you know, I, mean, I can go on and on with stories of people that you would think, well, surely these people are ardent atheists when, in fact, though they traffic in all the theories of uh, origins that you would say are unbiblical, they recognize as I think is a reasonable assumption there 's got to be an unmoved mover or an uncaused cause, which is by definition what we would categorize as God. God who needs no creator. He needs no origin. He is eternal. He's outside of the creation itself. If you want more on some of this, you can go to Sermon 1451. I should have listed a few more of those, but there's lots on our website to deal with some of the options and cosmology and Things that we've tried to deal with, at least on a deeper level, but a fairly understandable and popular level. And books galore to go as deep as you'd like to go. But again, I'm saying we could spin our wheels all night in trying to talk about that 3% in America that would staunchly say, I understand the question and I don't believe it. I'm confident there's no God. And I'm saying I don't think that's helpful for our purposes to recognize that most people you talk to are going to believe that every house is built by someone and the builder of all things is God, however they define that. Reasonable assumption. Now there are some unpopular alternatives. And I say that because if pressed, this is where people get. That's why a lot of the physicist or even the you know microbiologist or whoever it might be that might even be well trained and ardent in defending some kind of origins that wants to explain everything in natural terms uh, still does not want to press their their philosophy to its logical extreme in other words i would put what i'm about to list a few things here these are not assumed by most evolutionists if people are trying to explain origins without god as was popular and we reviewed the history of this in our series on bad theology on that section on the atheist but if you want to look at what evolutionists believe they don't want to press reality completely to where the theory um takes them. In other words, to really say, as so often is said, wow, what's wrong with my, there it is. We would say, I think in explaining something regarding origins without God, you might say, well, it's unintended, purposeless, unplanned, and meaningless. But see, as I even mentioned on a weekend not long ago, uh, most people are not existential nihilists. They do not really believe, and they don't live like, and they won't even admit when pressed that life and reality is meaningless, unplanned, purposeless, and unintended. They don't live that way. They don't raise their kids that way. They don't teach their kids to do what is right that way. And they would even admit, I believe there's some kind of meaning in life and there is some purpose and plan. They might believe that there's even a, a teleos or, a, or, or an end or a direction to history. Um, so there's a theory that sits there that most people on the UCI campus is going to say, I believe this theory. But there's a disconnect between that And where the alternatives take you if there is no God. That's why over 90%, uh, even on college campuses, would probably say there is God somehow, regardless of how they define that and what kind of latitude they give to defining that. So most evolutionists will describe the method of origins that way, but not the reason. They want to get back to somehow including God and, and putting some kind of something, a great spirit, something beyond, some supernatural power, some purposeful something that fits behind the fabric of all their discussions about, you know, super colliders and, 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 you know, Hoggs bosons and, or Higgs bosons and, you know, whatever they want to deal with in terms of their belief regarding origins, they're gonna try to and, and, and eventually, in most cases say there's some kind of meaning, there's some kind of purpose, there's something something beyond what happens. They will do something at a, at, a, at a funeral, they will say something in the midst of loss or grief or pain that is going to express the fact that they don't want to think that everything is unintended, purposeless, unplanned and meaningless. All right, and our bookstore will have plenty that can help you with this. But again, I think we would spend a lot of energy and time, which we even have done in the past, that I wonder about the usefulness of it that's not going to help your conversation with the guy who is there working at your house or that you hang out with across the mailbox it's most of that isn't going to be necessary or needed so we wanted to find God and here's our claim and if you are in tune with apologetic theories regarding evidentialism or classic apologetics or presuppositionalism, I guess this starts to show a little bit of my perspective because our claim basically uh, is twofold. And it starts with this, the assumption that God has, has revealed himself, that God has actually this intended cause, purposeful, meaningful creator has revealed himself. He has explained himself. He has made himself known. And we believe, of course, that the Bible is the record of that revelation. God has not kept himself silent. God has not kept himself hidden. God has, in some way, created or has communicated to his creation, here is what you can know about me. He doesn't tell us everything, obviously, and no one claims that. Uh, no reasonable person claims that. No one I know claims that. But they claim that he has revealed himself. And that is the claim. All the way back to the common phrases we might use uh, in reflecting, you know, Francis Schaeffer's book, he is there and not silent. I mean, if you really want to get down to it, that's the bottom line. There is a God. It's a reasonable assumption. And he has revealed himself. And we can point to the book that we hold up as Christians and say, we believe he's revealed himself here. So the challenge, this is a real short section of our outline, is simply exposing the Bible's authority, which again is often dismissed by people saying, well, it's a lot of circular reasoning. You're going to the Bible to explain God. Well, where do you get that authority? We'll leave it God's word. We're going to deal with that for a couple of weeks here coming up. But that is our challenge. Whether we're talking to someone at our office or our, you know, our, our wayward child, adult child, or whoever it is, we, are, we want to expose the Bible's authority. And we want to expose it. No one gave it authority, as we'll see, but, and we spent 13 weeks on this topic some time ago to try and deal with why the Bible is a unique book. where did our Bible come from? So we want to expose its authority. And then the hardest challenge of all, which of course needs God, all of it needs God, but we're calling people to submit to its message, what it says about who God is and what God requires of us. We want people to understand that that is the only hope we have, is to align our thinking and our behavior and our reality to the message of the Bible, which begins with there's a huge problem. After we understand there is a God, he has revealed himself as creator, holy, just, and loving. We've got a problem. we got a problem with this God. So we'll find that so much of what we're going to deal with in apologetics as we just get started in this discussion, certainly starting week three and following, is interacting with the fact that the Bible is not your average book. It's not the poly canon. It's not the book of Mormon. It's not the Quran. This is a unique book. It bears the unique marks of God's revelatory authority. And we've got to deal with that. It's one of the reasons we want to get people interacting with that book. And it's really sad for a lot of Christians that aren't even interacting with that book very often themselves. But the real goal of evangelism and apologetics is to get people exposed to the word because there's something about that. If it is God's authoritative book and it's not man's best thoughts about God, but God's thoughts on paper, that this book is the real Weapon, it's the tool, it's the transformative thing. It is, as the Bible itself puts it, which may sound like circular reasoning to you, but we'll get into why this makes sense that it is itself living and active and sharper than any two edged sword, and it pierces through all the stuff all the rationalization and justification to get down to where I am. It divides my thoughts and my intentions and my motives. So that's our challenge. As a matter of fact, that kind of is a preview for where we're going to go, whether we're going to deal with as we will, and we'll look outside of scripture as well to see how the frame matches the picture, if you will. But we're going to try to understand all of these issues, whether it's the miraculous, whether it's the resurrection of Christ, whether it's the message of, of the afterlife or whatever it might be, all of these things, are going to have to intersect with the issue of the authority of the Bible and its message. And nothing could be more important today. And if you want to look at how biblical Christianity is undermined in any, any world religion or any cult group, it always is going to aim at Scripture. You can't even get the big organizations that carry the name Christian on it, like Roman Catholicism, without itself attacking the Bible and saying, well, the Bible itself is not sufficient. And, and, and so everything less than, I mean, think, look at the Roman Catholic Church that is hailing itself as Christ's representative, right? Everything has to undermine the authority of Scripture and the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. And eventually then it gets you to a place of not submitting to its message, which we believe is transformative, transforms your future. It's determinative. Humanly speaking, it's the difference between where you spend eternity, how you interact with that message. All right, there is a God. He has revealed himself. We're exposing the authority of the Bible and calling people to submit to his message. That is the whole, really, of what we're doing in a very brief, concise way. So let's spend our time now dealing with this. I mean, what it comes down to is you're going to deal with people in different levels that we are going to say are ignoring the God of that book, the God who has revealed himself in that book. So What categories are we dealing with? Well, the category I said is in the minority. Let's at least start with them, the militant atheists. And they're called today the new atheists because it's a new brand of atheism. And again, I would refer to you that message I did on, I think we called it atheism. And seeing how it's changed how it used to be it was hard not to believe in god in academia then it became you know acceptable to not believe in god to where now in academia it's hard to believe in god at at least if you do you'll do it at your own peril and that you'll be attacked now that happens even in organizations where as i say you've still got a high percentage of theists they may not believe the god of the bible and yet they are struggling with the prevailing view which is you're going to take some hits if you're going to Assert the fact that you are believing in God. So there is an element there, and they're very vocal. As a matter of fact, there was a time, I think I reported this stat, looking at the publishing industry where the new atheist books, whether it's Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins, they were outselling Christian books, which was phenomenal. Uh, title by title, they were. And so there's a lot of people devouring this information. And we at least need to know it's out there. What's the perspective? Well, this is what it is. It's an attack on theism. It's no longer, here's an alternative to theism. And that is where they're at. They're very vocal about religion is the problem. Religion and God and theism in general, it needs to be done away with. which is nothing new you can go back to Voltaire you can talk about Karl Marx you can look at Sigmund Freud and and we've dealt with some of this in the past the philosophers that have really seen religion as a problem and at the nut of it theism is a problem if you believe in God it's a problem but this is a a new kind of aggressiveness it targets Christianity in particular perhaps because we're an easy whipping boy because we're not as defensive as other religions and I say that because a lot of what's said about Christianity, they dare not say about Islam, uh, in part because the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, and theirs oftentimes are, at least those if you want to mock Muhammad or draw a cartoon of him or whatever it might be that attacks Islam, there's going to be a whole different kind of pushback. And even by our secular society and our media, it's amazing how Christianity becomes the particular target in the bullseye. And a lot of this comes, the new atheism from Western society and from uh, Western society, the dominant religious adherence has been Christianity, which is changing. It's still the biggest religion by terms of self-identifying adherence, but that's been the target and perhaps that's part of it. I think part of it is, as I just said, because we don't fight back the same way that others do. I'm not trying to be rude, but there's a great deal of arrogance about modern atheism. Not that there hasn't always been some arrogance and rebellion involved in it, but it's a kind of arrogant and hostile direction. It's a you're stupid if you believe in God and we're smart, we got it figured out. And I got a lot of examples of this and I've given you examples of this if you've been with me in the past, but you wouldn't see this kind of thing in the past. Matter of fact, do this billboard about Muhammad, as I said, and you're going to have a whole different reaction than most Christians that are going go, oh, most of them put their head back in their shell like a turtle and they hide. But I mean, these are the kinds of things that you see, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, you'll see t-shirts like this, which is Bad enough, I suppose, but I mean, think of this I mean this is the kind of thing you can 't say about anything the only church that illuminates is a burning church i 've seen these bumper stickers, perhaps you 've seen them lots of places have billboards like this in the beginning. man created God, which of course be a fun. I suppose uh, play on words from Genesis one one. I even like the way they hedge their bets here. There's probably no God. I mean, you ought to be a little more affirming, I suppose, and, and emphatic about that, right? Well, you should, should say there is no God, but so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Well, the part I'm going to be concerned with if I follow the philosophy of the billboard is the word probably in all of that. That makes me worry a little bit. This is a popular poster, sold several, right? Fear not, hell. Don't fear hell. For if it exists, you shall find yourself in good company. And all these superstars from Brad Pitt to the intellectuals of the day, these are people that you're going to be in good company with if it's there. And again, even the word if is the interesting thing about even the modern atheist, arrogant, and hostile attacks on Christianity. Again, they don't understand what God has said about judgment, by the way. There's outer darkness. There's loneliness. There's no Grace. Certainly, there's no congregating with your favorite philosopher or movie star. Yeah, you're not going to hang out with Nietzsche and have coffee with Denon or Thomas Paine. Anyway, this is the kind of thing you get. And you'll get this from a very small group of people, and you share your faith enough, you're going to run into the militant atheist, and he's going to basically say, I don't want to reason with you. You know, all these intellectuals and influencers in society, they're right, and, and you're wrong. How do we respond? What's the response to the militant atheist? Well, this is not because we don't have a reasonable answer, and I can't put a poster up with a lot uh, a lot more very intelligent, genius philosophers who are theists or intellectuals or whoever else it might be. But it's because the Bible is very clear about responding to people that have no interest in your response. So when you run into those folks, I think you need to think through whether or not there should be a response at all. And I would venture to say, even though some of you like to sharpen your skills in affirming and defending what you believe, I think you need to think about what it's going to do, particularly if you want to play this all out on Twitter or Facebook. Usually not a good idea. Why? Because the Bible has warned about this. Proverbs 23, 9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool for he will despise the good sense of your words. And there's a certainly a hearkening, I guess a tin because it was coming in the New Testament, of Christ's word, pearls. Those are really nice. You wouldn't want to give them to pigs, to swine. And the idea is you're getting something as good and precious, not that you're hiding it or can't defend it or can't rationally present it. It's just that what are you doing? It's, it's not helpful. So there's a time to shut your mouth, as the Proverbs say elsewhere, right? You don't want to answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. And you'll drag yourself into an arrogant debate and a controversy that often doesn't bear any fruit. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 7, whoever corrects a scoffer, if that's what you've got, a scoffer who's flipping off Jesus on a poster. I don't know if I have that guy in my office, if I have any interest at all in correcting him. Correcting a scoffer, all you're going to do is get yourself abused. You make yourself a target of being pummeled. If you reprove a wicked man, you'll incur injury, so why would I do it? And plenty of good examples of that in scripture. Acts chapter 13 verse 46, Paul and Barnabas say, since you thrust aside the word, right, the gospel, and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, I guess there's a backhand slam there, right? I mean, you don't want eternal life. Well then, great. Look, we're turning to the Gentiles then. And you see that often. Jesus gave his 70 that instructions. He gave the 12 that instructions. You go into the village, if they don't want to accept it, they're rejecting me, not you. Kick the dust off your sandals and move on. And some of you need to do that. Not as though you are God and can understand when they've passed the point of no return. Be careful about doing that. You don't know that. But I can say it may be that on your prayer list or on your witnessing list, you say, these folks aren't interested. They stiff farm me. There's a time for me to be done with this conversation. And we move on. And maybe someone else will pick up the mantle and have a better hearing than we do. So be very careful about your response. But if you do respond, there needs to always be, as we saw last time in our theme verse for apologetics, we need to always respond with gentleness and respect. Not just because it's disarming, because a gentle answer turns away wrath, and that does that, right? There is something about that, something disarming about it. But because primarily, as scripture always reminds us, even our staunchest opponents are image bearers. They bear the image of God. We think of them in light of Scripture. And Scripture tells us that they are made in the image of God and they have value. If I murdered someone in a debate, if I'm debating atheism as a theist, and I murdered them, the Bible says I should be executed. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. And so there's something sacred about life in general. And so you need to inject that back into your mind. And if you are going to engage someone who is hostile and militant against Christianity and against God's belief in general... I need you to remember the fact that they are image bearers. Jesus remembered that in all of his responses. He entrusted himself as an example for us to God who righteously judges. And he said, don't take your own revenge. And that can happen not just with clubs and sticks and guns and knives. It can happen with our words. And I just want to remind us whenever we're engaged in these kinds of conversations, they get heated real fast. There's a moral rebellion At least, again, I'm deferring to God's self-revelation. We'll look at why that makes sense next week and the week after. But we need to remind ourselves that that moral rebellion is often driving so much of the vitriol against God. Psalm 2, why do nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It's a vain fight against God ultimately. Why do the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord? They set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, which in the immediate foreground of that passage, of course, is the king of Israel, the anointed king. And yet we know the ultimate anointed one, which the messiah that Hebrew word is the Christ in Greek, which we transliterate, and of course, represents Christ, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. And these are people that feel in some way imprisoned by God. They feel incarcerated by God. They feel bound. They feel, to put it in terms of our modern era, they feel like God cramps their style and all of his rules are harshing their fun. Well, the Bible says he who sits in heaven laughs, which is not a comedic laugh, it's a derisive laugh. The Lord holds them in derision and he will speak to them in his wrath one day, will terrify them in fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And God certainly is enthroned as we saw last week in the sermon on the ascension. He's enthroned Christ with authority. One day he'll take that authority and begin to reign. Right now he hasn't, he's reigning in heaven, you might say, but he's gonna take his great power, begin to reign on earth. And the Bible says there'll be punishment and retribution for those that rebel against God. But we need to remember the moral component and look back up at it. There is that sense in which they feel constricted by God. His bonds and his, his strictures on our lives, we need to burst free. There's a moral rebellion. Matter of fact, almost for every outspoken atheist, most of them, that I read of grow up in situations where they have some influence of Christianity or some influence of religious authority. Uh, usually, you can find a point of departure. Certainly, from those that we would see as uh, apostate, we would call it, who turn their back completely on Christ because they have exposure to Christ early in their life or early in their experience. Uh, usually, have some point of departure that is a act of moral rebellion. you can find that it's not in every case, but certainly you see the tie in scripture. As it says in Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 20, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. There's a moral component to them wanting to do their own thing and be free from God. Remember in this passage, it's the passage where God keeps repeating in this text through Paul that he's turning them over, turning them over, turning them over. He's letting them do what they're doing. But the truth of it is, this next line is critically important, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why? Because there's a moral component of rebellion against God. Because what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain, but they suppress it. It's plain, but they fight it because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, at least what's on the table in this passage, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made, so that they're without excuse. They're fighting a battle internally. And again, it's a moral component. It's a rebellious moral component because of ungodly decisions and unrighteous decisions. And therefore, I want to do what I want to do, and I want to suppress the strictures and the confines and the cords of God's moral dictates. I don't want those in my life. So you can find so often that the militant atheists are rebelling against an authority. They want what they want, and what they want is freedom from God's rules. I mean, that's the basic biblical explanation and diagnostic when we deal with the fool who believes there's no God. Well, how do I respond to an atheist and if, if I feel like there is a response? there's some. It's not pearl before swine. There's at least some openness to discuss. We've gone into great length in talking about this in the past. There's plenty of great books on this, but to appeal to nature is critical. As a matter of fact, every book you pick up on apologetics, the first section of the book is usually on theism. It's usually about God. It's usually about proving the rationality of God, and it usually goes into great detail about the fact that it makes sense that in creation there would be a God. As a matter of fact, the cause and effect argument is usually the first one in all these books. And I was tempted to go again into another round of that discussion. But I don't think that's necessary here. All I'm saying is even in a five-minute conversation with a non-Christian over the mailbox, I want to remind them of something that the Bible says God's already doing in their life. And that is appealing to them by nature. God is making plain to them the authority and the attributes of God, at least some of them, by the natural world that they interface with every single day. They drive over the hill on the way home and they see the sunset and they recognize something about the beauty or the symmetry or the power or the perfection of the universe. And you can read these books, of course, almost every good Christian book about apologetics is going to get into the nitty gritty and the details about the world and how it's made and that every cause I'm mean, sorry, that every effect needs a cause. Or as often these books get into every design, right, necessitates a designer. You don't walk into a field and see a, a you know, a, an iPhone there and think that somehow it just came to be. It is that every house has a builder and the builder of all things is God. And there, there's nothing wrong with getting back to something that may feel well-worn in your mind, and that is Christians need to keep appealing to nature. If you're an atheist, you need to rethink the reality of nature, and you may be trying to hide under the theory that somehow everything got here by natural causes, but the Bible says you've got the God who created them constantly pushing against that argument by saying in creation what is known about God is is made plain to you by the fact that there's something rather than nothing and the something that is is incredibly detailed and designed and then you can get into value and virtues which a lot of these books do you've got things about beauty and justice and kindness and all the things that are transcendent about reality in our everyday experience and all of these are decent for us to let people think through when you think about uh paul copen came out and did some lecturing for our gals in uh, in our women's ministry Um, He wrote a book, I think it's called The Rationality of God. He's written several books, but a lot of good argumentation thinking through why we want in this world a... Lawgiver, just to think about the virtues and values if, if people say as they often do i think people should be free to do whatever they want as long as they don't hurt anyone as long as they don't hurt anyone i mean there's a million different examples you could give as to why by the way all the freedom that they want usually with a caveat do whatever you want don't have the strictures and bonds of some moral agent out there that's trying to tell you what to do but there's always a caveat well as long as this happens well then you start examining the qualification. And you find that usually there's nothing absolute about that. You're not going to hurt anyone to dig up, you know, my grandpa's corpse and violate it sexually. Not going to hurt anyone in that. I guess you could do whatever you want, but there are certainly laws against desecrating corpse. And most people would say, even the atheist, I don't think that's a good idea. And there's something transcendent about a value that we place even on a dead body let alone the fact that I could say, well, I have a date rape drug and I'm gonna go to a party tonight and I'm gonna give it to a gal. And you know what? It's the kind of drug that puts her in such a perfectly peaceful state. I can violate her sexually all night. She's gonna wake up. I won't impregnate her. I won't hurt her. She'll wake up without having any knowing any difference. There's no big deal here. She won't be hurt. I don't hurt anyone. And I accomplished the ethic that you wanna live by. And that is, I do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone. But you'd still say, well, there wasn't consent. But again, those kinds of arguments always necessitate something that goes beyond just a natural world with a set of artificial ethics that don't demand some kind of virtue and value that go beyond what a naturalist or someone who's an atheist would insist upon. And I guess you can go on endlessly with those kinds of examples and find that really there's no way for someone who has nothing transcendent about a creator can, they can't answer them all. I mean, they just really can't. You can't come up with this kind of atheistic Morality, which is just one aspect of it. And I know there's been a lot of work in this whole intelligent design movement, which of course they're not six-day creationists, which of course I'm a younger six-day creationist, but they still are pushing the issues that will get someone who's a non-Christian to think, well, wait a minute, it doesn't make sense. There, there should be a lawgiver. There should be purpose and meaning in life. There should be a designer who designed these kinds of things. And there's probably some ultimate cause. Even if I believe as they teach, whether it's about this one billionth of a second after the singularity exploded in the Big Bang and there was stuff that happened there by a set of physical rules that can't be replicated, that no one can look up in a textbook because we don't even know what they were, but they happened. Even if you go through all of that, eventually you will say, in most cases, well, I guess if I think about it long enough, there has to be something beyond that. And though they want to say to us, you're just believing in a God of the gaps, we don't believe in a God of the gaps. And by that, I mean that we're just explaining the unknown by God. And no theist is doing that. At least no thoughtful theist has ever written a book on the topic is doing that. We're saying the whole thing is evidence of God, that there's something rather than nothing, that there's virtue, that there's value, that there's design. And again, I'm dealing with such a small part of the, of the population. I don't want to belabor the militant atheist. I think one of the best things you can do is give them respectful warnings i mean i do want to discuss creation and what it says and virtue and value which is speaking even of our conscience but in the end i want to give respectful warnings to those that are image bearers who deny the reality of god they're fools according to god's word and they need to be warned about their foolish behavior the folly will lead to death the folly will lead to consequence and I think all of these will be memorable conversations. So I'm, I'm all in favor of you having them as long as it's not pearl before the swine, as long as you're not just inviting an insult or a beating, as the Bible says, because you're giving correction to a scoffer. But if there's openness, I think these conversations need to end with memorable, well, I'm sorry, with uh, respectful warnings, I think will be memorable conversations. I think if the rich man, I showed you this slide last week, thinking about examples of I mean, we were dealing with it in different context, but the story Jesus tells about the rich man who was in torment, and he says, please, I beg you, Father, speaking to Abraham, send him, that is Lazarus, who's now there with Abraham, send him to my father's house, his physical father's house, for I got five brothers so they may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Had this man in this story been warned, I assure you that would be fresh on his mind. And all I'm saying is, without being arrogant and without being hostile, which are the things I'm accusing a lot of the militant atheists of being. I want to be respectful and kind, but I want to warn them, and I want to be confident, as I should be, that these are going to be memorable conversations. And, I mean, that's a sad thing. That leads to pity and mercy, I think, in my heart. But still, and I've said it more times probably than I should have, you're going to remember this conversation. I'm confident of that. All right. Here's some examples of respectful warnings in scripture. Rhetorical question. Do you presume upon the riches of God's kindness and his forbearance and his patience? Which is exactly what he's doing with people that create posters and say, you're wrong, we're right, and F you, Jesus, and if you're wrong, you're going to have a great time in hell with all the celebrities. God is giving you a lot of forbearance and patience. Don't you realize that that kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The whole point of his tolerance is to get you to repent. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, that's not a bad sentence to repeat in a conversation. You are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Now, in our day, if you say something as simple and respectful as that, it will be seen as hatred and bigotry. But it's the truth. I mean, I was just talking on the way up here about something I said at the men's Bible study last night. Was it last night? Tuesday night talked about how we should care a lot less. I didn't say it quite so nicely as I'm about to say it, but we should care a lot less about what the world thinks because of their destiny. And and I think that's a warning that we give to a lost world when they want to be militantly foolish about the fact that there is no accountability, there is no God, and we should be free from all of his strictures and his rules. Is that not a respectful yet very clear and powerful warning That's an example. There's several in scripture. All right, letter B, back of the worksheet. And again, I'm not saying that every atheist is militant and I'm not saying that every agnostic is lazy, but I wanna label this section that, the lazy agnostics. And there are lazy agnostics out there and that's probably the kind you're gonna find. Unless you're just trafficking in the professorial world of the university, most agnostics are gonna tend to laziness. Let's just put it that way. Here's the perspective. Most agnostics I talk to, they're kind of the maybe, maybe not, I'm not sure, you know, can't really know, who can know, who's right anyway, if you say it's this way, and the Muslims say it's that way, and the Hindus say it's like that. I mean, who knows? Maybe there's not even a God. I don't know. Gnostic, so the transliteration of the, the Greek word gnosis in Koine, and Attic Greek, gnosis means knowledge. Of course, it's got a negation at the front of it, the particle A, an alpha, alpha particle. It means no knowledge. Now, that no knowledge needs to be distinguished. We need to figure out what we're talking about. Are we talking about, and I think this is the first thing we need to do, are you saying that you don't know, or are you saying that we can't know? In other words, agnostics will like to say, I don't know if there's a God, and you don't either. And I'm saying, no, I I know that there's a God, and they're saying, well, you can't know. Well, the can't know is different than you don't know. You know agnostic. It's an easy at least for most people. I'm not saying there's not philosophical agnostics. I've read them. I know they're out there. There's guys that have written big, long treatise about it. There's a Berkeley professor, for instance, which is interesting to look at the agnostics that are on record as being philosophical agnostics, the things they open themselves up to. I'm thinking that Berkeley professor he ends up defending astrology among several other things that he writes about. But my point is, the agnostics you know are often the people, those kinds of professors notwithstanding, who basically just want to stay neutral it's one They want to be in a neutral position. You have people, I mean, in your family, you have people in your circle that say they're agnostic because it's kind of a safe place to be for the average person, the armchair agnostic. Not even against anything I've said before, matter of fact, inclusive of that, I want to start to offer to explore evidence. I remember the agnostic I won to Christ. He was a financial planner, I think. And I, I, I just said, let's just meet together. And I know that seems scary because you think, well, that's Pastor Mike. You probably know a lot. And, and it, you know, it was a slam dunk for you. When you meet with someone and offer to meet with them and say, so let's just meet once a week or twice a week at a restaurant for breakfast, whatever it might be. This is not a debate. You're not going to debate. You're going to hear the agnostics' doubts and questions, and you have time to respond to it. And I'm just saying, would you please offer to explore evidence with the agnostic, I just challenge you to do that. It's not as hard as you think it is. As a matter of fact, a lot of things they say, you're going to go, I've already thought about that. Matter of fact, I worked through that on my own mind. And if you don't know, you say, well, let me have a few days to figure that out or think that through and get back to you. As we'll see, and I'm going to get into this next week, but you're going to have to keep coming back as I've already tipped my hand here to scripture. I mean, Christ is the thing you got to deal with. And the Christ is revealed to us in time and space, 2,000 years ago, and recorded in scripture that I'm going to present as a reliable document, a reflection of God's revelation on paper. And that's what I want to do. I, I don't want to deal with any agnostic, let alone atheist, if I can get the atheist to read his Bible, to not, not deal with scripture. And, and I want to get them to read scripture, I want to discuss the Bible, and I'm going to get their nose in to revelation, because we need to deal with Christ. More on that next week. Of course, creation, we talked about that. Design, cause and effect, design, designer, those are all helpful to think through. And virtue and value, all those are the kinds of things that I think you want the agnostic to consider to at least say, wow, I have to deal with those issues and it may lead me to conclusions. Now, when I go beyond this virtue and value statement to the statement or a word that represents a whole category of conscience, Not only is creation speaking loudly, their conscience is speaking loudly. And what you're telling them, as Paul said, a plain, he says, we refuse to tamper with the word of God, but by a plain statement, right? A plain presentation of the truth. We're to declare it plainly. We're not going to manipulate it. We're not going to practice cunning. He says, we appeal to every man's conscience. And I think that's an important aspect of how you present and approach the agnostic is dealing with conscience in your delivery. And we're going to deal with that throughout this whole multi-week presentation. And another layer, I think, to put on this, particularly with someone you're meeting with, and I would invite you to do that if you can't have a conversation and explore all the questions that an agnostic has in one conversation. I think there needs to be an urgency even about every meeting you have with an agnostic. The urgency of Scripture reminds us that, I mean, I'm not even quoting the Corinthian passage, but today's a day of salvation. As the Scripture says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? It's a mist that appears for a little while, a little time, and, and it vanishes away. There's a sense throughout Scripture of the importance of feeling the urgency of the discussion regarding where we stand on these issues. At least the atheist is coming to me saying, I've made a decision. The agnostic is usually in a neutral position saying, I haven't made a decision. Indecision is what we want to press people to move off of as soon as possible. Not only is there no guarantee for tomorrow, of course, Revelation 22 reminds us that there ought to be that kind of imminence about Christ's return. He's coming. He's going to bring his recompense with him. He's going to repay each one according to what they've done. He's the beginning, the end, the first, the last, beginning, the end. You've got to make this decision because there's always consequences to your presuppositions. There's consequences to your life. When a man wants to die, after that comes the judgment. So Christ, and here's the good news we're offering, right? Having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's the position of the Christian dealing with the agnostic who wants to sit around and shrug their shoulders and say, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Don't let the agnostic though say, I don't know if there's a God and neither do you. That's just not an acceptable position. And I don't accept that from an agnostic because if you want to say you don't know, that's great, but let's explore the evidence and let's talk about the urgency of making that decision. I always talk to the agnostic I guess I talk to almost everyone this way eventually in my discussions and say, listen, if I were to satisfy all your intellectual questions, would you become a Christian? And that often reveals the fact that there's a moral rebellion, as I said about the atheist, that's always brewing under the surface. But I want to ask that question in part in this conversation with the agnostics so that we can press the urgency. In other words, today, would you respond today if we could deal with the question that makes you say, I don't know? And again, not every atheist is... Militant. Not every agnostic is lazy and not every relativist is apathetic. Relativist is apathetic, but there's a lot of relativists that are. They just feel like it doesn't matter and I don't care. Their perspective is to each his own. I've got a view of God. You've got a view of God. Right? It's true for you. It's not for me. What's true for me is not true for you. Everyone's right. Everyone's got their angle. Who are we to judge? I mean, this is the Oprah theology of our day. It's very popular. And it's a position in my mind of saying none of this really matters all that much. There's an apathy to it of people thinking it doesn't matter. I guess the agnostic can often have that perspective, but let's at least give you that sense for the relativists, which is often the case. Think of the relativists in your life. This is probably a bigger, we're probably moving up in the categories, are we not? You've shared the gospel with some militant atheists perhaps, but that's few. You probably shared the gospel with more agnostics. Well, probably the majority of us in the room, if we've shared the gospel more than three times, have dealt with a relativist, which is, that's your view, and that's good for you. I think family members are the first to present this to you after you become a Christian. A lot of them are like, hey, whatever. You, got, you found religion. You found God. That's great. Good for you. Just don't talk to me about it and try and make me one. All right, how to respond to the relativists. Copen, I guess, dealt with that This week, I I really need to listen to what he taught. We're going to have him back, by the way, for uh, CBI. He's offered to come and teach an intensive class, college level, with papers and assignments and reading. But that'll be good to have him back. Chair of the philosophy department at, what, Palm Beach, I think, in Florida. Here, Here's the bottom line. To put it as simply as, I mean, we could spend weeks dealing with the reality of why relativism makes no sense. But opinions can't change fact. It gets back to what we dealt with last week, which was truth is correspondence with reality. We believe our our truth claims, as Francis Schaeffer said, are, we believe our true truth. They actually, I mean, we need an adjective now. This is really something that we believe has a correspondence with reality. The whole topic tonight is God. Is there a God? And now the real question is, well, there is a God, perhaps, but your God is your God, and my God is my God, and that guy's God is that guy's God. So we've now got really squishy about our theism. We might not even be in the atheistic category anymore, but we're trying to define God, and we're saying we really can't define God because God is defined however you'd like to define him. And as we dealt with last week, you may have opinions about God, you may have opinions about pizza, maybe a truthful statement about your opinion, but it doesn't change fact. And the fact is the objectivity that whatever something is, if it exists, you can't change it by your opinion. Matter of fact, the section we talked about defining God, you cannot define, I guess you could define it, but you cannot define it in the sense of determining something, or in this case, someone who exists. You cannot determine who I am by your opinion of me. Do you follow that? You just can't because there's objectivity to my existence. And if there's objectivity to anyone's existence, it would be the ultimate cause of all things, the unmoved mover and the uncaused cause. God is a God who can't be determined by any creature's opinion. Just matter of fact, no creature can be determined or defined in an ultimate sense, determined by anyone's opinion. People have opinions of me. This is not post-Meridian. This is supposed to stand for Pastor Mike right here, PM. I don't think anyone's going to say this, but someone might say Pastor Mike likes Chinese food. He really likes Chinese food. Pastor Mike loves playing golf. Pastor Mike hates pink gumballs. Red ones are great, pink ones he doesn't like. Pastor Mike thinks Pastor Rod should be the president. <laughs> Pastor Mike is allergic to peanut butter. Pastor Mike always drinks more than one cup of coffee every week. Pastor Mike won't hire another pastor who's taller than him. (laughs) Pastor Mike doesn't trust anyone who's taller than six foot two. Pastor Mike likes green beans. Pastor Mike has never had a cavity. Pastor Mike loves jelly bellies. Pastor Mike would never buy a Korean made car. Being a quasi known person in a small fishbowl like this, or even more so, I guess now that focal point's been going for 20 years or whatever it's been going for. A lot of people have opinions about me. They will even make assertions about me. I've had people introduce me to other people who they might meet when I'm traveling somewhere. And they'll say things about me because of something they understood from something I said on some broadcast. And it'll sound a lot like this. And people say, well, here's what pastor Mike's all about. Nothing by the way, on this screen is true. Not a single one of those. No right? I don't like golf. I mean, I've played golf for years because I love my family members, but I don't love golf. I'm not allergic to peanut butter. I bought my wife a Korean-made car. I don't like coffee. I don't like jelly bellies. I love jelly beans. If you're going to buy me some, buy me Brock's jelly bean. I do not like jelly bellies. There's a sad excuse for jelly beans in my mind. I'll eat pink gumballs all day. I have nothing against tall people. I've had a cavity. I don't know. Are you convinced those are none of those are true? I mean, I just picked a bunch of random, silly things, but... Whatever you think about me does not make that me. You can talk about my reputation, perhaps. And you can say, well, Pastor Mike, you've led me to believe this. But I can guarantee you when people introduce me to someone that they don't know, or someone I don't know, and they're trying to explain who I am. I mean, they've done it all the way down to simple facts that you would immediately say, well, no, he, you know, Mike's got four kids. Well, I don't have four kids. I mean, there's all kinds of things that people have said that are not true. Well, the same goes for God. And this is happening all the time. I don't God wants you to be happy. God lets sincere people of any religion go to heaven. God's in favor of love. He doesn't care who you love. God would never send people to hell. God doesn't require people to go to church as long as they're seeking him. God doesn't expect people not to be true to their own feelings. Marriage is okay, God says, between any two people as long as they love each other. God is not against abortion if the baby really isn't wanted. God wants you to keep your faith a private matter. God is whoever you want him to be, which is exactly what people are saying. None of those things are true about God, obviously, and we can go on and on and on. You've got to recognize, even if you don't believe our source of authority, which I think we should spend a lot of time in apologetics trying to establish, that the Bible we believe and rightly so and reasonably so is God's self-disclosure, his self-revelation. But even if you don't buy that, you cannot sit back and pontificate about God and think because you assert something that it must be true for you. There's nothing that's true for you. When people talk about your truth, you've heard a lot of that lately, haven't you? Just speak your truth. I think there's Oprah that popularized that phrase at least really recently, your truth. You don't have your truth. Your truth is not your truth. Truth is objective. It's always been objective. And if you want to talk about someone, whatever you say about them is true or false objectively. You can't define God as in determine God. Surveys don't get to define God. And that's often taking the place, taking place in our day right? People's opinions don't get to determine what's true, which again is how we determine truth in our society, down to all kinds of things in our day, in our quote-unquote democratic society. Certainly the Supreme Court doesn't get to decide what's right. I mean, they believe that they do. Your feelings don't get to decide what's good. No one, including Satan in the garden, gets to decide what God is like. They can say what God is, or demons can say what he is or isn't, but it doesn't matter. Matter of fact, it always gets back to scripture. There's only one lawgiver and judge, There's only one person who's revealed himself to tell you who he is and what he is. He's given his fingerprints on creation. He's given an echo of his law in your conscience. But he gave a book. That's what we'll determine. That's our premise. That's our contention. And we believe in that book. He's given us self-disclosure that he will hold us accountable for affirming. That's why the book should be so important to you, by the way. 10% of fessing Christians, 10%, only 10% have even read the whole Bible. Do you realize that? People who say that they're Christians, only 10% have read the whole book. They claim to base their whole life on it, and yet they've never read it from cover to cover. And yet I still get grief for the daily Bible reading that we keep pushing around here. You know what? I've had people that have been in our church for 13 years that have come up and said kind of with a gleeful joy, you know what? I've been reading the DVR for 13 years. I've read through the Bible 13 times, and I think I wonder what percentage you're in in terms of Christianity. I may have people complain about a lot of things regarding the DBR, but I'm telling you, I don't apologize for telling you to read the Bible and only ten percent of the people in this world that say they're Christians have read the whole thing. It takes seventy-five hours to read the whole Bible out loud, fifty-five hours to read it to your quietly, silently. Fifty-five hours. You know how many you know how long it takes you to put fifty-five hours to log fifty-five hours surfing the internet? Doesn't take you long. The Bible's gotta be central in our evangelism, in our lives. How do we respond to the relativists? Well, we have to Expose the inconsistency of relativism is what I'm trying to say. You've got to make sure people know your opinions can't determine objective truth. God has revealed himself. We're going to deal with that for a couple of weeks coming up. And I want to show the inconsistency of that in all kinds of areas. True for you, not for me, is not the way anyone treats their meetings with their doctor. They don't want an accountant who's a relativist. They prefer their pharmacist doesn't believe in your truth and my truth. We deal objectively, even intuitively, about things that we know matter. If there's anything that matters, it's your creator and your relationship to your creator. And we've got to let relativists know this makes no sense. I haven't seen Oprah for years. I, I don't know why I keep bringing her, but I, I picture her. You want to get on her bad side. She represents just so much of the modern person today. My neighbors. Oprah is what I picture you want to raise her ire? All you have to do is be absolute about your statements regarding God. Everything's cool as long as you're not absolute about your statements about God. That this is what God says, this is who God is, and this is what God requires. It's the kind of thing the average modern does not want to hear. Well, you care about your doctor, you care about your accountant, you care about your pharmacist, you care about the things they traffic in. That's why you're not apathetic about those things. You're going to, you you want to be apathetic about God, that's absurd. Point that out in a nice, respectful way with gentleness and respect. The dodgy naturalist, letter D, And again, I'm not trying to say every naturalist is dodgy, but most of them are. They're dodging and selective and bobbing and weaving regarding their naturalism. By naturalist, I mean, as I've said already, I've defined it. They believe that only things that you can deal with in your five senses, that's all there is. Everything can be empirically explained. You are chemicals. They write books, as Dennett has, trying to explain consciousness, which all of the arguments seem to fall short. You've got, you've got to explain things, and they have to explain things naturally in some way that they can explain by what you can touch and feel and what is, is chemically real, what is tangibly, physically, materially real. Now, there are folks that try to live consistent with that, but most people are not living consistently with that. What they believe is, and most people do, even those who believe in the Big Bang, 13 billion years, and believe in whatever it is, the naturalistic explanations of origins. They still believe in that, but they don't believe in God being involved. God is checked out. God is not anywhere involved in anything that's going on here now. You might be familiar with deism and that being a good definition of deism, the the clockmaker. He's made the clock. He's wound it up. It's running. And so that big ball of fusion up there in the sky that's almost 900,000 miles across in diameter, that thing up there is burning out because God got it lit and started it and got it all going and he's walked away. There's nothing now beyond the physical, even though most of them have dodged to say, well, there is something because I got to believe there's some kind of meaning. There's some kind of purpose. There's some kind of intentionality. But when it comes to my life right now, you're trying to talk about things regarding God and the Holy Spirit and God's word and changing your life and future and judgment and all of that. I, I don't believe any of that. They will work so often And again, this is over 90% to say there's some kind of God in the beginning, but I don't think there's any God at the end. And if there is a God at the end, then I'm kind of the relativistic person that says, it's all going to work out and I'm sure God will be fine with whatever I believed about him or however I responded to what he said. I'm not going to face God. He's not going to once to die and then come the judgment. The dodgy naturalist is very selective. There's a potpourri cafeteria style application of their empiricism. I want to just expose that. My response to the dodgy naturalist is, listen, let's be consistent. If you're going to affirm God's involvement in origins, and most of them do, most of them do. I mean, again, this is my experience and this, the polls and the surveys back this up. And all I'm saying is, you believe that the God who created has walked away. I want to get back to saying, that's an interesting view of reality, a God who no longer is involved in his creation. Well, what I want to do, is highlight God's ongoing work. And I'm not talking about the breaking of natural law that happened at the church this week, which again, you understand my view of that. I'm talking about things like the miracle and phenomenon of life, the reality of the intangibles of transcendent virtue and values like justice and beauty, and the inverse of that guilt and shame and order and symmetry and and, and the scripture itself as a unique and miraculous book in that it attests to itself through predictive prophecy. And that's one of many things we can say about the affirmation of the book that makes it transcendent. We'll talk about that. I want to highlight those things, the phenomenon of life itself. I mean, even Paul talking about God giving us life and breath and everything else. And then he says in the defense of his faith, he says, would you find it an incredible thing that God would raise the dead? I don't know if you heard the message I preached, I think, two Easter's ago on the resurrection it's an interesting thing to just ponder and contemplate the difference between a dead frog and a living frog the reality of life and the reality of god taking stuff from the dust of the earth and the chemicals and the compounds and all that we're made of the the proteins and the enzymes and all of that now is life to try and describe not only consciousness as the new atheists work hard to try and do Feudally, I believe, but life itself. What is that all about? This electrical currents? We can put electrical currents and things. I mean, what are we dealing with when we're dealing with life? And to think that God has not only created life, but sustains life, reflexive, conscious life. That, I think, is the kind of highlight of God's ongoing work that sends deism and naturalism, at least practical naturalism, the dodgy naturalist, back to the drawing board. And of course, we're going to look at God's revelation in Christ. There's nothing bigger than. This figure historically 2,000 years ago that I think you're inescapably drawn to conclude that he was not from this domain. He did not have a normal life. He predicted and was predicted hundreds of years before his arrival. And he predicted in his own lifetime his death and resurrection. And there are not any good options as most skeptics who've tried to disprove christianity pointing at the resurrection knowing that's the linchpin they're stuck at looking at god revealing himself in christ which is exactly by the way what hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 say i mean god has spoken in many many ways i mean through the prophets and lots of attestation of that and then he speaks to us in these last days in his son which i think you've got to deal with the naturalists and saying there's something supernatural and natural about the reality of Christ. And we'll look at that as we get to Christ later in the semester. All right, just four real quick things. The motivations, I think, for a lot of this, if it's not full-blown denial, the squishy theism or the pushing of the stiff arm of people saying, well, I don't want your rigid definitions of, of God, which, of course, are not our definitions of God. I think the Bible's going to diagnose this by saying people don't like feeling guilty. That's one of the reasons we don't want this. We've already looked at it in Psalm 1, but Psalm 14, we even quoted this. I only quoted the first half of the verse. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Well, the next sentence defines it because they're corrupt and they do abominable deeds. In other words, there's a disconnect. They don't want to affirm God because of what it would say then about themselves. John three nineteen and 20, Jesus said the same thing. The light is coming to the world. But like a flashlight to cockroaches, it didn't work out well because the people didn't like it. They loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his work should be exposed. So I don't want God, not the God of Psalm 2, who's got leadership over us. I, I don't want that because that leadership is is light and my life is darkness. And so I'd feel guilty. Look for that connection. Whatever variety of Atheism, agnosticism, skepticism, naturalism—there might be in someone's thinking. I want you to think about the fact: where is that moral component of saying one thing? I want to avoid is feelings of guilt. I mean, we are—we don't like feelings. None of us like feelings of guilt. Guilt's supposed to lead us to repentance, which leads to salvation. Second Corinthians chapter seven. But people don't want that, so I think that's one of the motivations. Number two, we like being in charge. Hensley's poem, right? Master of my fate, captain of my soul. I want to be in charge. To put it in the words of Christ, who's Parabolizing his departure and his return. And he says the citizens hated the son who came to reign over his property because the citizens, they didn't like it. They said, We don't want this man to reign over us, which is universal. We want to be the pilot. If Christ, maybe, if I can find a theology where he can be my co pilot, that's great. And maybe you can just take me in for a landing because I just want to fly the plane you know, I can take it off and I can fly it, but just if you can land it when I'm ready to die, that's okay. But I don't want to not be in charge. And yet that's what the gospel demands. Second Corinthians five fifteen. he died. Christ did for us that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There's no avoiding that the Lordship of Christ, which is why people don't like biblical Christianity. And I get that's why if you're Logical, you want to deal with the root of the problem, which is the God of the Bible. So I don't like the God of the Bible to be the God of the Bible in my life, because it's going to make me feel guilty. I won't get to be in charge of my life anymore. And I don't like that. And you know what? The world is filled with people that don't want God to be in charge. And I'd like to be in with the rest of the citizens who've sent the flyer out that says, I don't want God to reign over us. So I want to fit in. John five forty four through 46, Jesus diagnoses the problem with the first century Pharisees who were very religious, but they didn't want Christ. He said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that comes only from God, only from God. That's where Paul says, Galatians 1, that's the point. I can't be called a servant of Christ if I care too much about what people think. Do not think that I'll accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you. It's that book you're reading, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. If you believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote of me. And the point is the clarity of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, the demands of Scripture that lead us to Christ and submission to the Lordship of Christ. Those are things you don't want. But I think the key phrase there is you want to receive glory from one another. And I think at some point, we've got to stand alone in our own thinking about I'm willing to not fit in. And I think the non-Christian who wants to deny God in some form or some way as an atheist, an agnostic, a naturalist, a relativist. A lot of that is guilt. A lot of it is thick-headed waywardness and wanting to be in charge. But it's also not wanting to be out of step with the world that we live in. Lastly, and I said this about the agnostic, but I think it's true of everyone. Naturally, we are lazy. We tend to be lazy. We like to be lazy. In Titus chapter 1 verses 12 through 14, talks about the Cretans there on the island of Crete. He tells Timothy, the pastor on that island, he says a prophet of their own, one of the Cretans said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He says, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. No, he says, this testimony is true. That's the way it is on that island. Therefore, Titus, rebuke them and do it sharply. You can do that with respect, but be very clear and poignant about that. That they may be sound in faith. Now, here's the key phrase, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Do you see the connection there? There's something about that kind of life that's filled with deception and evil, gluttonous, beastly. I just want to do whatever feels good and I don't like the responsibility and I want to chill with my feet up. That, he says, is the attraction to the kind of false teaching, the commands of people who turn away from the truth, the Jewish myths, the genealogy, something that's going to get me out of it. And it was the same thing with the Pharisees. They didn't want to lift the burden even with a finger. And so they were clear... In binding together with their theology that kept them away from the truth of Christ. And I think in our day, I mean if you think about it, think about why people get a taste of biblical Christianity or they go to a good Bible teaching church and they want to be done with it. It's too much work, it's too much thinking, it's too much, too much circumspection, too much like self-evaluation. They don't like that. It's pressure. They don't like the whole stirring one another up. That's the Greek word for provoking, to love these the goads. You're kicking against the goads. Well, I just want to get away from the goads. To to quote Acts chapter ten. So I think there's some things to remember. The moral rebellion tendency, the wanting to be in charge, the wanting to fit in, the wanting to be agnostic, relativistic, whatever it might be, naturalistic, because I just don't want to. I don't want to be so persnickety about the details of all this. All right, that's a week I wasn't looking forward to only because I feel like in my evangelism, I don't know, maybe this was helpful for you. That's not a very inspiring close to the sermon, but I can't wait for next week because it all comes down... To discussing this book called the bible so we're going to dive into that next week why do we know this is the word of god and i'm excited to get into that more excited next week i guarantee you than i was tonight so let's pray and i'll let you go all right well that's kind of you let's pray god thanks for our reminder to share our faith which we're getting on the weekend and we're also getting here because i keep talking about the fact that this material and this information it's applicable and I mean, we bring it into our daily conversations when we're talking with non-Christians. So God, I pray we would talk with non-Christians. And I know it's the minority, but there are a lot of people who still would say in our world that even if they think there is a God, they say, well, who can really be sure and who really knows? And why would I be so dogmatic? And maybe you're right and I'm right too. And, you know, maybe he got things started and then walked away. There's lots of versions of this that God, you know, are something we've got to deal with. So I do pray that this information would be useful. It would come back to our minds. We would have these very simple responses that we've talked about that I hope are not up in the ivory tower, very simple things to call them back to conscience and creation and the issues of, of, of beauty and symmetry and design and cause and effect and the basics that really lead me, even in the worst day of thinking, man, what is, what is going on here? It's I, an inescapable conclusion there is a God. And of course, next week and the week following, and you've revealed yourself so clearly in the scriptures. There's just no denying that. And it all starts with the fact that you are there and you're not silent. And so God, I pray that we would be much more confident in battling in the most respectful and yet clear way, sometimes even sharply rebuking those that just wanna, they wanna wiggle out of the truth and they don't wanna face it or they don't wanna deal with it or they're so afraid of what it might cost them. God, help us to be those ambassadors of, of yours, that when these people ask us, why do you believe that? We can respond and respond well. Thanks for this crew. I pray you'd bring them back next week and we continue our study, and that it would be just increasingly helpful in us having conversations with those we want to share the gospel with. In Jesus' name, amen.